Hi, this is Kale Clark. Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. I'm so glad that you're with me today for this journey of exploring, understanding, explaining, and defending our Catholic faith. Continuing with our look at the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, and that last petition, Deliver Us From Evil, which, as we determined, is really deliver us from the evil one. And we're looking at the temptation of Jesus in the desert in Matthew's gospel to kind of shed some light on our personal battles as well uh, with the evil one. And let's look now at the last big temptation. And this is the worst of them all. But let's let's look at the entire passage here. This is again Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Now, we looked at the first and second temptations of Jesus in the wilderness in previous episodes. You can check the podcast uh, if you miss those ones. But I want to look now at this third and most insidious temptation of them all. What happened? Well, Satan, it says in verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8 of Matthew, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So when he took him, when the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, again, just as with the a trip to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. This could have been a visionary experience. So this might not refer to an actual mountain somewhere in Israel. There's been a lot of ink spilled about, hey, which mountain was this? Was this the Mount of Olives? You know, where was this? Not necessarily any particular mountain uh, in Israel. But we have to admit that the concept of high mountains in general is a really biblical theme. Uh, This is all over the place in the Old Testament, also in a lot of Jewish traditions at the time. Uh, Let's check out, for example, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17 is very interesting when it comes to this concept of the high mountain. Uh, We we see this in, in verse 22 of Ezekiel 17. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it upon a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a noble cedar, 
and under it will dwell all kinds of beasts. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. So this idea of planting upon a high and lofty mountain, we also see it later on in Ezekiel 20, verse 40. And that verse reads as follows. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. As a pleasing odor, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country which I swore to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all the doings with which you have polluted yourselves. And you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. So that is Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 40 and following. So we also see Baruch chapter 5, verse 7, also says something very similar. Also Isaiah 40, verse 9. There's also some, some Jewish writings that didn't make the cut, as it were, into the Bible. The Testament of Levi, very, very important document. Here's what it says there. I beheld a high mountain and I was upon it. Now, this this is kind of a a really good passage for trying to figure out what was going on here with Jesus because what's going on is the patriarch Levi, he's dreaming this. I beheld a high mountain and I was upon it. And then Enoch in 1st Enoch, again, a very important extra-biblical writing, a writing outside of the Bible uh, to the Jewish people. Another vision. Now, here's what it says. This high mountain which you have seen, whose summit is like the throne of God, is his throne where the great Holy One, the Lord of glory, the eternal King, will sit when he shall come down to visit the earth with goodness. And that's from 1st Enoch chapter 25, verse 3. So, this concept of the mountain is really, really important in the Bible and in the Jewish imagination. What happens there? Well, once they get there, whether it's a dream, a vision, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Now, by the way, uh, Craig Evans mentions there is a possible parallel here with Deuteronomy chapter 34, because someone else who's very important in salvation history, Moses, is also shown something on a mountain. Let's check it out. This is Deuteronomy chapter 34. It says, And Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, 
the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Well, that's pretty impressive. When Moses died, he was 120 years old. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. I'm not nearly as old as him, but I I kind of feel like that is happening to me. But uh, there we have Moses. He gets to see the promised land from the mountain, but he himself does not get to go there. So it's not quite the same here. And Evans mentions this. This parallel is inexact. Why? Because that's not what's happening here with Jesus and Satan. Satan is showing Jesus all the kingdoms of, not Israel, as Moses saw, but the kingdoms of the world. And by the way, Moses didn't get to possess these things. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Well, that's not quite true. He did get there. He's there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and the prophet Elijah. So technicality there. But here's the thing. Satan is saying to Jesus, these are the kingdoms of all the world. And what's more, you're not just going to look at them. I can actually give them to you. He, he has been given somehow this power. And by the way, when we're thinking of kingdoms of the world, these are, again, Gentile kingdoms, including, including all of the Roman Empire, which is currently oppressing the people of God. And so any... Anyone really claiming to be the Messiah, the Messianic credentials that were expected in Jesus' time, the Messiah was expected to be a military ruler who would cast out the occupying Romans. But we know that Jesus' kingdom is much different. As he said when he was on trial before Pilate in John's Gospel, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would have fought to prevent me from being handed over. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not that kind of kingdom. And so... All of these somehow can be given to Jesus. And so this seems like the ideal. This seems like, as Craig Evans says, a dream offer for a would-be messianic leader of Israel who's itching to throw off the Gentile yoke. And so all of this is in the background here, but Jesus is not what people expected from the Messiah. He's going to do something much better, not deliver simply from human oppressive kingdoms, but to deliver his people from the oppressive power of Satan himself, who's the backup, the power behind all this evil in the world. So there's only one catch, though, as we know. In order for Jesus to get this, Satan says, you must fall down and worship me. Not going to happen. <laughs> now, this idea of falling down to worship, that is mentioned elsewhere. For example, the Magi. In Matthew chapter 2, they bring these gifts to the Lord and they bow down, they fall down and worship him. There are a lot of other phrases in the New Testament where this is mentioned. 
uh, Acts 10.25, 1 Corinthians 14.25. It's all over the place in the Old Testament as well. Ruth 2.10, 1 Samuel 20.41. 1 Samuel 25, 23, 2 Chronicles 7, 3, 20, 18, 29, 30, Judith 6, 18, 1 Maccabees 4, 55, Sirach 50, 17. This, this is the concept of uh, people falling down and worshiping the Lord. But maybe the best example of what's going on here, the kind of thing that Satan hopes will happen, uh, we see this in Daniel chapter 3. This is the famous golden statue, this massive statue that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up on the plain of Dura in Babylon. It's probably a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar himself, for goodness sakes, but here's what it says in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set to, sent to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And of course, everybody did fall down and worship the statue, except, of course, the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, they were thrown into that fiery furnace where God protected them. And so that's really kind of in the background here, this idea that everyone, including the exiles, uh, from Judah were to fall down and worship the image of the king. Daniel's friends uh, didn't do it. Now, of course, Jesus can't do this either. Uh, this is the most insidious of all the temptations because of the fact that all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of the Christ. Uh, we see this in the New Testament. These kingdoms really do belong to him. He has a right to them. But Satan, of course, wants Jesus to take a dangerous shortcut, and he's not going to do this. This would be blasphemy. So what does Jesus say? Away with you, Satan. And really, it's the same word that's used in the exorcisms uh, that Jesus uh, conducts when he, for example, orders the unclean spirits, the legion of unclean spirits, into the pigs, and then they rush into the banks and fall to their deaths. We also say... Uh, we see in Mark 9.25, when Jesus says, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. That is exactly the kind of force that Jesus says to Satan, away with you. He's kind of expelling him from the situation. So once again, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, just as he has with the other temptations. Anytime Satan tried to use scripture against him, Jesus responds with the right interpretation. And so now he quotes 
uh, Deuteronomy one more time. Deuteronomy 6.13, he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the book of Deuteronomy, again, it's in the background here, not, not just with these quotations that Jesus uh, brings forth to reply to the devil, but also really this whole concept of 40 days and 40 nights. That's exactly how long Moses was with the Lord, if you look at uh, that book. And, and that's exactly really what's in the background of these temptations, Jesus in the desert, for 40 days and 40 nights. And then it says in verse 11 of Matthew 4, then the devil left him. Then the devil left him. It's actually in the present tense, as Evans points out in his commentary on Matthew. It's actually in the Greek, it's in the present tense. The devil leaves him. He leaves him. He hasn't left him for good. He's left him for now. He's going to come back again. The fight isn't over. And in fact, in Luke's version of the temptation narrative, in Luke 4.13, it says that the devil leaves him when? Until an opportune time. Now, when might that be? There's many possibilities. Could be in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus uh, knows he's going to have to face the cross. There's no way out. And in his human nature, he doesn't want to go there. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that's an opportune time. It's presented that way on film. This is a prime time for Satan to tempt Jesus. And in the film, Satan says things to him like, you're not really God's son. He doesn't love you. And what does Jesus do? There's a little snake that slithers out from Satan's robe, and Jesus stomps on and crushes the head of the serpent. Very symbolic, uh, just like it prophesies in the book of Genesis chapter 3, that he will crush your head. That's what God says to the serpent. And so, this is what, what happens here, and the devil does depart for the moment. The devil departs, but angels do show up. It says, angels came and waited on him. And once again, this is really referencing another book of the Old Testament. A very similar thing happened to the prophet Elijah. In the first book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, we read this. It says, Ahab told Jezebel, now Jezebel was really trying to kill the prophet, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all of the prophets with the sword. These are the false prophets. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, your fate is sealed. You're going to die. It says, Then he was afraid. Elijah was afraid. And he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey, where? Into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, else the journey will be too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and walked in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So that, that's a great Old Testament parallel there. 
That's probably what the angels were doing uh, when they came and waited uh, on Jesus. In fact, it probably gave him some food because he was hungry after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Now, what happens later on, though, and Evans points this out, in Jesus' passion, it's a lot different. Jesus refuses any aid that the angels could possibly give him at that point. When Jesus is arrested, uh, before he is taken to the authorities, to the high priest, and eventually turned over to Pilate, what happens? One of his companions, in all likelihood Peter, uh, grabs a sword and tries to tries to defend Jesus. And we know from one of the Gospels that he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, whose name was Malchus. And by the way, he, he didn't say, uh, can you just excuse me for a moment? I just want to grab your ear and slice it off very nicely. No, he was probably trying to kill him, probably trying to split his head open. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Do you not think that I couldn't call 12 legions of angels from my father to defend me? But no, uh, this is not how it's going to happen. This is in Matthew 26, verse 53. You can look this up for yourself. So he rejects that aid from angels that he could have had at that point because he's going to be experiencing the dregs of the passion. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. So really, when we come to the end of this final petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one, we understand that this this is the petition that has proven so difficult at times for non-Catholics and non-Christians, and let's face it, even a lot of believers to understand. As Scott Hahn reports in his book, Understanding Our Father, that the psychoanalyst C.G. Young, he misinterpreted this petition in the prayer. And, and that's one of the major reasons why he walked away from Christianity. He said, well, God is not really love and goodness. He's the tempter and the destroyer. If he could possibly lead us into temptation, uh, why would we even pray this prayer? Well, he obviously was very confused about a couple of things, at least a couple of things. But whenever the Bible talks about temptation or the tempter, the tempter is always the devil. And we saw this as we looked at Matthew chapter 4. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God. We also see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, this is what St. Paul writes, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent that I might know your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. St. Paul really wanted to know uh, where they were at. So again, we have to reiterate, God does not tempt. God does not tempt. The devil tempts, but God does not. We need to avoid temptation, but we can't get away from it completely. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, uh, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary the temptations come, but woe to the man by whom the temptations come. So very often temptations can come uh, from other people, uh, even from within, of course. We, we can't blame everything on the devil. Here's what James says in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Another thing that, that Han mentions, too, in his book, that things that can tempt us are also adverse circumstances in life, when, when the ball doesn't bounce our way, so to speak. There is illness, 
Uh, there can be failure. Uh, there can be humiliation. Whenever there's a great reversal in our life, um, that is a temptation sometimes, a temptation to despair. It's also an occasion of, of falling into sin as well, because when things aren't going well at the human level, very often we look for little compensations rather than trying to find our security, our joy in God. Sometimes we think that a sin is the answer to make us feel better. It never is. It only makes things worse. So we have to go back to the very, very beginning as to where all this came from, including other evils, uh, natural disasters, all kinds of things. Even the creation itself, as St. Paul writes about, has been infected with sin. This all goes back to the original sin. God created us with freedom. He didn't want robots. He could have made us that way. There's automatons that would always choose his will. But he gave our first parents freedom of choice, free will. He only said, look, you can have anything in the garden except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat the fruit from that tree because if you do, you will die. You will die. And of course, the devil uh, does tempt our first parents, and he always tries to twist God's word, just as he did with Jesus, of course, in the desert, in the wilderness. He said, did God really say that? You know, did he really say you shall not die? And of course, there is a grain of truth in his lie. When they took the fruit and they ate it, they, they didn't die physically, but something much worse happened. They died spiritually. They died supernaturally. What he meant as a temptation, God had allowed as a test. And Han says, look, if, if they had actually passed that test, they would have gone straight into a life even greater than paradise, even greater than what was in the Garden of Eden. They would have lived that life of glory straight away because they would have learned the most important lesson that we all can live and that we all can learn that love is a total gift of self. And just as the Trinity is all about that in the inner life, to, in the inner life of God, we need to live that as well, that sacrificial love, that life-giving love. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do, but it's what we have to do now. It's what we can do now with the power of Jesus Christ through the grace that he gives us. That's all the time we have for today, but if you have a question about the Catholic faith, I'll try to answer it on the air. You can send it to me via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com, or you can try to get your question to me on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark. I'll be with you later today at 5 p.m. Central for the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio, and I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained. God bless.